From the ACLU, this is At Liberty. I'm Kendall Seesmeyer, your host. Imagine that you, at age 15, have been sentenced to social death, life without parole, in a space nine feet by seven, the size of a freight elevator, where for 22 to 24 hours a day, you are trapped, where in a deadly daily routine, you sleep, wake up, shit, piss, eat, food slipped through a slot as if you were an animal, where you are denied the possibility of human contact except as physical or mental abuse, where visual and sensory stimuli, the stuff of life, are only a memory or a dream, where who you are is defined only by your willingness or unwillingness to be disciplined and punished. Imagine life without hope in a brutal hellhole of sameness designed to break your spirit and challenge your sanity. This is an excerpt from Ian Manuel's memoir, My Time Will Come, a memoir of crime, punishment, hope, and redemption, where Ian recounts his real-life experience spending 26 years in prison, 18 of those years in solitary confinement, before advocacy efforts from the Equal Justice Initiative led to his release in 2016. Since Ian's release, he has made waves as an activist, poet, and motivational speaker. His 2022 memoir recounts his journey from his teenage years to the present, and we are so honored to have him with us today to talk about juvenile life without parole, solitary confinement, and restorative justice. Ian, welcome to At Liberty, and thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Kendall. I appreciate you having me. So, Ian, you grew up in Central Park Village, a historic Black community in Tampa that was once prosperous with Black entrepreneurship before suffering deadly riots and looting in the late 60s. I was wondering if we could start by having you describe what life was like in Central Park Village for you growing up, what it looked like, and what went on in your community. Yeah, growing up in Central Park uh, Village was uh, extremely difficult. It was surrounded by a lot of violence. Um, you know, uh, we didn't have any gangs uh, back then in, in, in Tampa. It was more of a neighborhood thing. Like uh, if you were from Central Park, for example, you shouldn't be caught in West Tampa or Ponce de Leon, a college of housing projects. And by uh, the same token, guys from those neighborhoods shouldn't be caught in our neighborhoods. I was pretty much raised by my mom and my grandmother. My my dad wasn't uh, involved in my life in the younger years. And my grandmother, Linda, loved me unconditionally, spoiled me. Um, she just was someone that really, really cared about me. But, uh, you know, she got, she developed dementia and had to move back to her hometown of Cordell, Georgia. Um, and that left me to kind of uh, fend for myself, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you you write a lot about your childhood in the book, living with your mom, your brother, and your grandmother, and the various roles that they had played in your life and the perceptions that they had of you. In quotes, you write that in Central Park Village, the only options for an 11-year-old boy like me to earn real money were to mug people or become a drug runner for the major players in the hood. I want to know part of that, regardless of how much I had glamorized my brother, Sean, who at this point in my life was serving time behind bars. 
I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about how you saw this lifestyle glamorized and and how you even perhaps tried to resist it at such a young age and what that was like for you growing up. Yeah, great question. You know, the the dope boys were the ones with the with the nice cars and the uh, the nice MCM uh, suits. You know, I, I guys were like some of my brother's friends, older friends, would pay me to uh, like carry guns for them from one end of the neighborhood to the next uh, part of the neighborhood. And I, I I used to wonder why that was, but they literally explained it to me. Like, if I get caught with this gun. I got to go do hard time in prison. If you get caught with this gun, you're just going to do a few uh, weeks in the detention center and be released back to the streets. Um, some some would actually have me uh, carry drugs for them as well uh, uh, from one end of the neighborhood to the next. Um, but and in ways that I would resist it, man, I, I just always felt different. I always had high aspirations for myself. Uh, I, I wanted to be an entertainer or an athlete. And um, I, uh, at the age of like 11, I went downtown. Uh, I convinced my friend Ronald to go downtown with me to look for a job. Um, and we were hired by the president of the YMCA. Uh, when I say hired, uh, that's kind of a stretch. He gave us a job to and was giving us money, but we weren't actually on the YMCA's payroll because we were too young. Um, but he was literally giving us um, $12, $15. Uh, we were making uh, $3 to $4 an hour. <laughs> I don't know, but it just felt like uh, it just felt like something different, a legitimate way to earn money besides robbing and, and, and selling drugs. Yeah, it sounds like you didn't have that many options that were legitimate as you as you describe to make money. And so I think, you know, that's important to note because when we think about crime and we talk about crime, we don't often talk about the conditions that catalyze crime, if you will. Eventually, you find yourself involved in robberies with other young boys from the Central Park Village, something that had become very normalized in your community as you've described. One of those attempted robberies resulted in you shooting 28-year-old Debbie Bagri in July of 1990 when you were 13. This is the event that led to your eventual arrest and sentenced to life in prison without parole. I'm sure you've told this story countless times, Ian, but would you be willing to describe what happened the night of the shooting and what you recall feeling? Um... Yeah, um, it happened so so long ago, man. But it's it's something that you kind of never forget. Um, uh, I, I just remember uh, one of my uh, associates coming to get me off of uh, uh, a female friend's porch and taking me in and asking me that uh, I want to go downtown to commit a robbery. Um, I was frustrated with this female friend at the time because she didn't want to go upstairs with me. Uh, like she had did in the past. And so I was acting on adolescent adrenaline and uh, emotion, and I was so frustrated. I, I just said, okay, let's go. And uh, we met up with, uh, everyone was older than me, uh, not not by much, but I was 13. Uh, uh, the guy that gave me the gun was like uh, 14. It was a 16-year-old and an 18-year-old. And... um. You know, we went downtown looking for someone to rob. The older guys 
kept trying to convince me to uh like just rob people in the open uh in the middle of the street and i felt like if we did that we would be immediately arrested because we was too wide open so i kept since i was the one with the gun i was like no 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 so i kept saying no for like until like a couple of hours had went by and the guys had got got frustrated with me and was like, well, if, you, if you're scared to do it, give the gun to somebody else. So I passed the gun to one of my uh, friends and next thing you know, we're passing this gun back and forth like a hot potato. No one wants to take it. And finally, uh, my friend um, gave me the gun and he was like, um, I know Jim Jim ain't scared, which is my, nick my street name uh, that my mother gave me my nickname as a kid. Um, you know, he'll do it. And so we made a pact that the next people that we approached, uh, we would uh, actually commit the robbery. Anyway, uh, fast forward to the scene of the crime. Uh, we approached this couple that was like leaning or sitting on this red car. I'll never forget. Um, and the oldest guy asked for change. One of the guys asked for change for a 20. And I thought I heard him say, yeah. And immediately uh, I said it's a uh, jack, which is the street terminology for a robbery. Uh, and the lady, I pulled out the gun and the lady uh, screamed and like, she screamed and startled me and uh, I shot the gun. Um, and then everything after that happened was a blur. Everything was just a blur. Wow. Um, thank you for sharing that. I'm sure it's like not easy to get into those details all of the time. You were not initially charged for the shooting until several weeks after it happened. And in the book, you write about confiding to an officer and confessing that you'd done it while in custody for stealing a car with two friends. I'm wondering what was going through your mind when you decided to confess this to the officer and, and what compelled you to tell him about what you'd done? Well, that's a great question because I asked myself that question uh, for 26 years. Uh, um, uh, yeah. Like, why did I actually, like, give myself up like that? It goes against everything that I had that had been instilled in me in the streets. It went against self-preservation. I didn't know at that time of the crime that someone was shot because as a kid, I was used to the television that when someone was shot that they fought, fell down and no mm. one fell during this incident. Um, Debbie kept running. And so when an officer came to the neighborhood later that evening and said someone was shot I, and that I fit the description uh, of someone that committed this crime, uh, I was like, Wow, I really shot somebody, man. And then when I uh, uh, was in the police station that night for the stolen car, I uh, I I saw the same police that I had seen the night of the crime in the police station. And I asked them, I said, did you guys ever catch that guy that uh, shot, the, uh, shot the lady downtown? And he said, no, I don't think we ever did. And um, so um, on the ride to the detention center later that night, uh, I don't know what came over me, man. I was going inside the detention center for a stolen car. I would have been out in 21 days. Um, but something just gnawing at my conscience just said, man, tell the police, share with him about what happened the night and, and you know, 
and and he he said it, it, he would let it stay in the car. It's one of the yeah one one of the most traumatic events of my life because uh it's painful to remember that I caused myself twenty six years of excruciating emotional and mental pain. But, uh, you know, just to get through the story, uh, I, I confessed to the officer that I was the guy that uh, shot the lady downtown. Uh, and he initially told me that, you know, he was going to allow me to go into the detention center and go to sleep because we had been in the police station, uh, police station, like five, six hours uh, waiting to go to the detention center for the stolen car. But after I made my confession, he goes into the detention center and makes a call to the detective and uh, the police station gets back in the car and takes me back downtown. But just to answer your question, I, I would say that gnawing, just the gnawing at my conscience because I was not raised to hurt people. I was not, my, my grandmother Linda didn't instill it into me or my mother, even my mother, mother Peggy and, her, and all her anger didn't instill it into me to like go around shooting people. So I think I wanted to clear my conscience. I think that makes a lot of sense. And I really appreciate you sharing that part of your story. I can tell that it's still very real in your voice. And so, you know, I appreciate you going there uh, for or with us. So while you were awaiting trial, you spent time at a juvenile facility and you there you met with a lawyer who implored you to plead guilty with the hope that you'd get sentenced to 15 years as a youth offender instead of a life sentence. Your mom also encouraged you to take this plea, but you initially didn't want to, asking the attorney to request life probation. You eventually did plead guilty, and I'm wondering how, Ian, did you make that decision for yourself at such a young age? Yeah, that was uh, a very tough decision to make. I mean, I kind of leaned on my mother uh for that decision, and she went to her grave regretting uh, that decision. Mm. Uh, my mother had been to prison before for her own shooting, and so being that she knew the prison system, I took her advice. And plus, I thought about all the times that my mom had asked me to do something, and I did the opposite, and I, I ended up reaping the consequences of my my actions because mom was usually right. Um. And so I pled guilty just thinking that she she knew what she was doing. Um uh and but there was really no plea deal. Uh the, the what my lawyer was essentially asking me to do was throw myself at the mercy of the court. Uh uh but he said he had worked it out with the judge behind the scenes and that I would be receiving a 15-year prison sentence but when you're that young you know 15 years it, that in and of itself sounds like a life sentence I hadn't even been alive 15 years yet and so I just that's why I told him to try to get me life probation because I had heard so many horror stories about prison I didn't want to go to prison period something that frustrates me was the fact that as soon as my lawyer, uh, as soon as the court accepted my plea, my lawyer said, Your Honor, there's been brought to my attention that there's been some instances in Mr. Manuel's life that makes me believe uh, that he may not be competent to stand trial. 
I, I read that transcript so many times in that solitary confinement cell. And the first thing that go, went through my mind was, if I'm not competent, if you don't feel like I'm competent to stand trial, how do you feel like I'm competent to enter a plea at this moment, right? But uh, he, 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 the judge was like, has there been any competency evaluations in this case? And my lawyer said no. And so what should have happened legally, my plea should have been struck right then until competency evaluations was had in a competency hearing. It was just very frustrating. So they accepted my plea, uh, despite my lawyer saying that uh, I wasn't, he didn't think I was competent to stand trial. And, uh, and then eventually a few months later, it was time for sentencing. Wow. Well, and I really appreciate you like stopping and and ma making sense and of the questions that you had or have still about your case yeah. um, and your trial, because uh, we know that the criminal legal system is uh, incredibly flawed. So I think it's really apt of you to name those things when you're telling your story, because it's true. Um, and people need to know that as well. On April 11th, 1991, you had the, a hearing which would determine your sentence and charges. During that hearing, State Attorney Karen Cox described you as a, quote, 13-year-old with no prospect of rehabilitation, which just sidebar is outrageous to say something like that about a 13-year-old, about anyone, period. As part of your life without parole sentence, you were in solitary confinement as well for 18 years, longer than anyone else in the state at the time. And over the course of your incarceration, you were moved throughout 12 different prisons in the state of Florida. How would you describe solitary confinement for people? And are there specific things that you think people need to understand about that form of punishment? Yeah, I think the number one thing people need to understand about solitary, particularly in the state of Florida, is that we're not talking about something that used to happen. This is still occurring right now to this day. I have two friends who have been in solitary confinement now who have broken my record. Uh, uh, Dow Streeter and Demetrius McCutcheons, the name of couple uh, who have been in solitary confinement over 25 years in the state of Florida. Um, and the, the things that they do to you in solitary and still are doing in solitary like uh, gassing you with this high-powered chemical agents like that you use on that's supposed to be used to quell riots are being sprayed in these cells or uh, the starvation that occurs uh, to uh, people in the solitary like they're deliberately not being fed. That injection with psychotropic medication to that like locks your body up like particularly this is one medication that they used to use all the time called Haldol. Now, I had it in my jacket that I was allergic to Haldol. Uh, so I've, I fortunately was never injected with it. But I've seen what it does to people. It literally contorts your face, your, your, uh, your muscles in your arms, and your legs, your tongue. Like it literally freezes, like locks your tongue up. It's crazy. The things that I've seen or uh, I've had done to me in solitary confinement or being placed in a freezing cold 
cell at 40 to 30 degrees uh, with no mattress, uh, with nothing but your boxers. And actually, when I first came to prison, they didn't even give you a pair of boxers. <laughs> you were butt naked. Um, and 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 like I, I just testified at the United Nations in Geneva, uh, and the people there were surprised that I was describing something in solitary confinement happening in the United States. And, and so uh, solitary confinement will always live with me, but I don't want us to get past the fact that this is occurring right now in America uh, and it needs to be something that I'm only one person. I need us to band together to help change this inhumanity that is happening in the United States of America on a daily basis in the penal system. Absolutely, Ian. Um, and that's exactly why we're talking to you, because we are very, very invested in um, the fight to end solitary confinement and the the fight to shrink the criminal legal system and the prison footprint in America. Because um, you're right about all of those things. When you describe the treatment that you encountered during solitary confinement, in the book, you talk a lot about the setbacks that you faced in terms of advancing through the levels of solitary confinement were from disciplinary reports. You described these instances when your reported actions were falsified by prison staff that had a bad perception of you and and times when your freedom was wagered by staff with their own interests in mind, often telling you that your fate was up to their discretion. But what was so surprising to me is that in the book, you also write that during these years, you cherished your aloneness in solitary confinement. You said you were really bored, spending hours on end imagining Practicing magical thinking. Yeah, I know, and uh, <laughs> um, I know that's not because it's such a contrast the here. I'm is because <sighs> I still do it. I still okay. do it. So tell me, in the midst of all of this horror, what is magical thinking, and how? What did this do for you? Well, the magical thinking is how I survived and. It's it's kind of it's, it's manifestation is what it is because the life that I'm currently living is the power of my imagination being fed and me believing that I have this quote the impossible is obtainable and um I constantly visualize I never. I never accepted the fact that I was going to die in prison. I never accepted the fact that I was going to never get out of solitary. I never accepted, accepted the fact that I was just like everybody else. My mom instilled in me as a young boy uh, that, Ian, you're brilliant. No matter what, don't never let them take your mind. And she used to say this to me as a young kid. And I'm like, who could she be talking about taking my mind? But I played that over and over in solitary confinement. And in my mind was my last line of defense against the insanity that surrounded me. I've seen so many people lose their minds in solitary, man. Solitary had an adverse effect on me, but not as strong as it did some people because I held on to the hope that I would get out one day. And so the magical thinking was, I'm gonna be on stage and people are gonna pay to see me uh, perform, which they have. And then one day, uh, it just paid off. It, it, it paid off in the, in, in the sense that magical thinking brought 
the the magical Brian Stevenson into my life. So we mentioned the power of magical thinking that you employed uh, while serving your time, and you mentioned that that's how that's what you believe led you to Brian Stevenson. Um, Brian Stevenson is the founder of the Equal Justice Initiative, which is an Alabama-based nonprofit organization that provides legal representation to people who have been illegally convicted, unfairly sentenced, or abused in state jails and prisons. He and EJI advocated for you and helped build the case for your release in 2016. Your relationship with EJI began in 2006 when you received a letter from Brian Stevenson. Like, note, that's 10 years before your release. What did Brian tell you in that letter, and what was your immediate reaction to it? First of all, it felt like a dream because, no, I had not heard of him. But just to have a lawyer writing me, asking me to take my case for free uh, was like, Every prisoner's dream, it felt like I, I finally had a, 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 a legitimate shot at getting my sentence overturned. It felt like I won the, the lottery of my life. Wow. Yeah, I bet. That sounds incredible. Eventually, it took a decade of working with EJI for you to be released, and it's an understatement, certainly, to say that that path to freedom did not come easily. Um, as we mentioned, you were put in and out of solitary confinement numerous times, transferred to several facilities, put through hearings and appeals and resentenced four times, among other challenges. Eventually, a Florida Court of Appeals made a decision, and on November 10th, 2016, you were released from prison. Can you describe the moment that you knew that you were going to be released? And what was the environment of the courtroom and your initial reaction? Uh, it was surreal. It felt like uh, I was escaping from a burning house alive with my with my flesh and my life intact. Uh, hey, man. You just don't know what it feels like. Uh, I, I, and I don't know if words does it justice. Like to have your biggest dream come true. Like to have that one thing that. To have that one thing that has been so elusive for so long. So many setbacks. Finally. In reality. Be right there and you live it. And you walk out of the, and you walk out of those gates and you hug your social worker Mariah Morrison who 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 was there uh, uh, to help you and love you unconditionally and and, and, and and be that consistency that you have been missing since your grandmother passed uh, and then to go to a parking lot and kiss the lady that you shot on both sides of the cheek like you did so many times in your imagine your magical thinking, it was the best moment of my life. I don't know if it it would I don't even know if winning the Oscar uh will will top that moment. I'm glad God chose me to experience that, man, because it's a it's a feeling that that's un indescribable. It sounds like it. I want to talk about the a component of your journey to freedom that we haven't touched on, which is this your which is your relationship with Debbie. 
uh, Bakery, the woman that you shot as a young boy. While your communication with Debbie wasn't always constant, in your book you write about periods of exchanged letters, phone calls, and her support of your case. Can you tell us a little bit about your relationship with Debbie and what it was like to receive that kind of friendship and perhaps even forgiveness from her? Yeah, I felt like Debbie was uh my like a guardian angel to me, man, because she had everybody in the world to hate me, and she didn't. Mm. Um, I called her as a as a fourteen year old kid in prison, and she accepted my call one Christmas. Um, and we we spoke on the phone, and 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 I told her I was sorry for 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 what I did, and um, actually could I write her, and she said yes. And um, Debbie's Debbie's friendship with me was just very unique and unusual. She's a very special lady, and I'm forever thankful for for uh, the fact that she forgave me and, and the fact that she accepted that collect call uh, over 30 years ago. Wow! And you all are still in touch now. Yeah, uh, her birthday is actually like seven, seven or eight days after mine. So we we make sure to send each other birthday wishes. We both kind of moved on with our life in 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 a, in a way, but we 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 know that we 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 share an experience that will connect us forever. Forever, yeah, absolutely. It seems that this this relationship with Debbie had glimmers of what uh, restorative justice can really offer us as an alternative to incarceration and can also really show us a way forward. I read that, you know, became alive for you or helped you within, uh, withstand your sentence and your period of incarceration, including solitary, um, is various forms of media. Among them, poetry became an important means of self-preservation and expression, and one that you're still known for today, which is really cool. Can you tell us more about your interest in poetry and how you came to fall in love with it, and what's so special about poetry to you? Oh, man, that's uh, that's so much. There's so much I want to say about that uh, uh, poetry segment, because poetry is my lifeline. It's... it's uh, First of all, I have a gift. My I have a gift. My gift is one of my gifts is the ability to compose words in ways that move people. Um, mm. And I do that extraordinarily well in poetry. I can attest to that. <laughs> you already are doing that in this interview. Thank you. Thank you. Um, it's just a gift. And I um I fell in love with poetry when someone sent me uh well, first of all, I, 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 there was this one poem that I heard when I was 14 called uh, uh, I, have a, I Have a Heart. And um, it was so beautiful. It was such a beautiful poem. It's about two lovers loving each other, one lover dying and going to heaven, and the other one saying, if you're, if you're not in heaven when I get there, I know you, you, you went the other way. So I give up all my my halo and my wings, give up everything and go to hell just to be with you because that's how much I love you. And I I I always felt like that's the type of love I wanted in my life. Someone who loved me so much that they would give up even being in heaven just to be with me. Um, then someone sent me Tupac Shakur's book, The Rose That Grew From Concrete. I haven't read it in years, but 
I, 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 I started rewriting Tupac's poems and sharing them with my fellow prisoners. And they mm. began to pay me to write their girlfriends and their wives' poetry. Um, and that's <laughs> when I knew I had a gift because... I love that. Yeah, that's when I knew I had a gift because prisoners don't have a lot of money. So if you can convince them to take their parents or their friends' hard-earned money to pay you for something, uh, you have a, a true talent because prisoners are the toughest critics in the world. They're tougher than Simon Cowell uh, or Sandman on Apollo. I, I, I'll, I'll tell you that right now. I appreciate you sharing about the ways in which poetry... Uh, Sounds like it really buoyed you in in prison, um, uh, along with this practice. Yeah, because it was my therapy. It was a, it allowed me to provide therapy for myself. Because in prison, you're conditioned not to show any weakness, uh, and so my poetry allowed me to tell the truth of my feelings and release them in a way that was cathartic and therapeutic without actually weeping. My, I cry through my pen. Wow. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's what the arts give us, right? A form of expression. Ian, I think you have a very bright future <laughs> in front of you. And it's been a pleasure to speak with you about your story and um, magical thinking. That's something I will be taking away. Um, and and your your poetry and your hope for your future. You're a light, and we I really enjoyed this conversation. And so did I, as did I. Thank you. Thank you so much. Before we said goodbye, we asked Ian to read us one of his poems that he wrote while he was incarcerated. It's called, Every Time I Breathe. Every time I breathe, I feel the need to justify my existence, to take this moment that I'm living and enjoy every millisecond in it. My life and my struggles, not many can comprehend it. My desire for freedom burns like a sausage inside a skillet. Tomorrow isn't promised, so I'm thankful for this minute. Though in prison, merely existing, it's like my life has been suspended. But that means it's temporary because I haven't been expelled. And I still got a chance as long as I can in and exhale every time I breathe. Every time I breathe, I'm thankful for the oxygen from the trees and little things like little bees that get overlooked until they sting. Every day I'm faced with progress that block the progress to my dreams. But the black A's only masquerades like costumes on Halloween. I've been through enough pain to make a sane man just scream. But instead, I take a deep breath and just breathe. Every time I breathe, the cosmos come out of my nostrils like particles of product coming out of your console. My soul is like a chihuahua you didn't include in your carpool. My lungs relax and collapse like a bottom sitting on a bar stool. Every time I breathe, every time I breathe, I become an intergalactic being stepping out of character like a chiropractor snapping peas. I pray so many times it's like I got arthritis in my knees, but I still get down and bow my head because I continue to believe that as long as I can breathe, God's gonna make a change. 
and my circumstances the only chances for me to glorify his name you don't know me homie but that's odds I've already overcame so if praying works but hurts then I can stand a little pain I want to end this part by thanking God for bringing me to these heights and I make a promise to always honor and cherish this breath of life every time I breathe every time I breathe every time I breathe thank you thanks so much for listening if you enjoyed this episode please subscribe to At Liberty wherever you get your podcasts and rate and review the show we really appreciate the feedback until next week stay strong at Liberty is a production of the ACLU, produced by me, Kendall Seesmeyer, and Vanessa Handy. This episode was edited by folks at Ultraviolet Audio.